now from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Hello, uglies, and welcome to another harrowing episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. As we continue our reign of terror across the country with the Boulay Brothers Dracula Season 4 World Tour, this episode of Creatures of the Night, much like our last episode, is being recorded from the road. Here with me is my terror twin, Drakmorda. Drakmorda, darling, how are you tonight? I am doing fabulous. Thank you for asking. And I'm just here looking at all of these fabulous gifts that we received in the U.S. <laughs> side of the tour. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. And I think reality has made liars of us because we've said many, many times that oh, we get showered with the best gifts in the U.K. And we did get some really thoughtful gifts in the U.K., but it did not compare to the U.S. this time. I am impressed. Oh my God, it's so good. The stuff that we've gotten has been fabulous. Very thoughtful gifts. So if you've come to the Boulay Brothers Dragula World Tour while we're here in the US and you brought us a gift, thank you very much. They're fabulous. If you didn't, well, well you know, that's fine for too. Yeah. <laughs> your presence was your present. <laughs> I guess. Honestly, we've gotten some really meaningful, cool gifts on this trip. Mm-hmm. You got a lot of Warhammer stuff. So yeah. people obviously listen to the podcast. Oh, like amazing figures, hand painted, really cool stuff. Someone gave you like a giant, I don't know what that it was. It was like, like a keeper of secrets, Greater Damon of Slanesh. Yeah, lots of books. So we got a lot of local books, which I thought was a really interesting gift. Like we got books about local monsters and local ghosts and things like that. So we got one from West Virginia, Ohio, Arizona. We got a bunch of them. Great resources too to be used again from the podcast because I think this is like a circle that feeds itself. These gifts showed me and showed us a lot of listeners take context clues from listening to Creatures of the Night and then those gifts kind of appeared. Things like from the games like Warhammer 40,000 and some of the nerdy stuff that we like, but also some like local lore stuff and people were literally saying here, you can use these in one of your hauntings of history. And I intend to. I'm going to look through all of them and I'm going to find some really interesting, juicy stories and share them on the haunting of history. Absolutely. Do you have any favorite gifts? I mean, we had that Boulay Brothers Barbie set, which was fantastic. The stand For those of you at home, I don't think we shared it online yet, but someone made us custom Boulay Brothers Barbie dolls and they were in custom packaging and everything. I mean, it looked like it was manufactured. So incredibly and meticulously well done. Yeah. I think they're channeling our season three promo look, which is kind of iconic. You know, the blood necklace, the pointy mm-hmm. shoulders, the exaggerated kind of swooshing hair. But in Barbie world, in like super dark, evil Barbie world, so good. Love it. So what about you? I mean, you kind of took it because the Barbies are just, for me, top tier. Yeah. There were a lot of, I'd say, more thoughtful gifts or more gifts connected to our world, handwritten letters and pieces of artwork. Who's <laughs> this one? person i still don't understand she comes up and she's like oh i have this for you i saw this really cheap necklace that was 50 cents and i was like oh my god i have to give it to them that little 90s joker i understand (laughs) i was like why okay well i mean thank you but sure you interrupted me for that cheap 90s choker i was just made me laugh because you made me think of it and i was like what is happening that was wild and that was like a questionable choice One gift that we actually did share on our social media was that gouache or watercolor painting of Mm -hmm. us, including Ian, as 
the main characters from Death Becomes, Death Becomes Her. Her. Oh my god, and Fabulous. it's so brilliant. Love it. Definitely, I'm definitely gonna get that framed and put it in the office. Yeah, and a close running for maybe my favorite gift too. It could be in the podcast area, so we can look at it every time yes. we record the podcast. So good. Yeah. We're still on the road. Yeah. For those of you at home that don't realize it yet, we still have not made it back home. We are still on <laughs> tour. It does seem like we've been gone for a thousand years, and I think we have. It does feel but like it, too. even though we are in a hotel conference room recording, I haven't let the vibe change. I've put some candles in here for us to make sure we still feel like our spooky selves. Mm-hmm. Let's set the stage, because I think the last time we were high above the Reno desert. and Glamorous Reno. Very glamorous. And tonight we're in another fabulous hotel which will remain nameless, but we just came off of the high of our New York City performance last night. One of the best shows, Oh my God, absolutely one of the best performances and one of my favorite nights on the tour where we sold out Brooklyn Steel and just set the borough on fire. Yeah, it was fabulous. I love going and performing in New York and this did not let me down. This might've been my favorite time ever performing in New York. I think so too. And it was just so special to share the stage with the top four, but also some of our special guests who were there, like some of the New York queens that were performing with us. Right, and I have to talk about Zavaleta for a moment because Zava came out with three strings of hair on her head, gala makeup, and a jock strap with a flashlight. And I was like, Sherry, good you luck. You fucked up. <laughs> right? But you know what? I knew. I knew she would do something incredible. And she did. Like, she cast a spell on that crowd. That was a fabulous mm-hmm. show. And it was like Swan Lake from Gollum yeah. World or something. I didn't realize that she had that level of poise. I almost felt like I was looking at like a ballet or something. It was beautiful. She reminded me why she's one of the stars of season four. She's a powerhouse. She looked ugly and her performance was beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of perfect. And Madeline Hatter was there. We haven't seen Madeline in a long time. Madeline looks great. She had her new work on full display. Her right? ass was out. Her <laughs> hair was out. She looked good. Yeah, she looked great. I loved her look. Her show was fun. It was just great to see everybody, honestly. Yeah, and it has been this entire experience because so many of the cities we've been able to stop and have monsters from previous seasons or even from season four join in on the cast. And it's been a very special experience for all of us. So what's been your favorite part of the tour so far? Well, before I share my favorites, why don't we bring in our co-host and Sith Apprentice and basically our sister in crime throughout this entire experience, Ian DeVogler. Ms. Ian, welcome to the show. Oh my God, a face for radio and a voice for silent films. I'm here and I'm queer. (laughs) Hi, how are you both? We're good. I'm excited that we're doing this. I'm excited that we're able to deliver another installment of Creatures of the Night and kind of catch everybody up on what we've been up to because I think for people, it maybe it's only been a week or two since our last podcast came out, but for us, it feels like a thousand years. Yeah. So much has happened. Thanks to Ian for being some kind of like haphazard scientist from the Goonies or something (laughs) and setting up this haphazard podcast recording studio because it seems to work. I mean, look, he looks like Frankenstein. Look at him. What is all this? It's amazing. Oh, (laughs) yes. Frankenstein, Frankenpussy. I'm over here. I'm all working it. Wires coming out everywhere. Computers. There's other things I don't want to discuss happening with these microphones. Oh, totally. I feel very like Tetsuo the Iron Man. I've also got like potions over here. I've got like matcha green tea powders. perfect. I mind blasted the lady at the front to give us this room. It's been amazing. Oh, my God. Okay. Actually, I do want to comment on that because you did. You mind blasted her because I went up and I'm like, 
hi, um, you know, I'm trying to record a podcast. And I feel like she like took one look at me and was like, ugh, trash. And then Swan <laughs> goes up and literally mind blasts her into giving us this fierce room. And I was like, I'm glad that one of us has that power. Yeah. It's because we're recording it in the middle of the night. Normally it wouldn't be a thing, but you had to have like this It's special... creatures of the night, exact... not creatures of the day. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> damn. I just got it. So we were about to move on to like some of our favorite moments of the tour. And I don't think we could have had that full conversation without you because we've pretty much been through this all together since day one yes and i was just about to say one of my favorite stops in the tour and probably the highlight of the first half was the phoenix show oh my god so amazing the venue was hot it was sold out but it was like the venue was on fire it was so electric and so huge when coco came out when formelda joined us i mean astrid was there it was unbelievable some of these venues have been insane in their size, right? I sent a video. I was like, look at this venue. And they were like, are you in an airport? I oh, was like, literally. it looks like it. Are you yeah. in an airplane hangar? Like, where was that? You remember? Oh, at least for me, there was the venue in Baltimore, which literally had like bleacher seating in the back. I was like, girl, what am I like at a baseball game in the <laughs> 1980s? Like it's hot, but like, holy shit, it was very strange. <laughs> What's the one where once the show was over, the back wall kind of rolled down and oh. it had the swing stage ability? That was the one that was That's huge. That's the one like it... that Ian was sitting around <gasps> in his like two inch shorts oh, doing laundry. God. <laughs> okay. So for those oh. of you who have never been on tour before, a lot of these venues are equipped with laundry laundry services for people who are on tour. And mama, I was on my last pair of panties. And so I was like, I have to do laundry. And I was like, I don't want to do my laundry if I'm going to be in my little short shorts. And the boys are like, girl, just do it. But I don't think y'all realized how short my shorts were going to be. Remember, our history with you is that you were in a jockstrap or a Vampirella thong for the first two years we knew you, so we can handle it. Yeah, it was nothing to us, but we didn't realize how many many other people were around that were going to be way more surprised than we were. No, totally. So there's a venue staff member who just rounds the corner, and I'm in my little hoochie shorts, and he just looks me up and goes, whoa. (laughs) I was like, hey, what's up, bro? Uh So funny. So we've had a good time so far, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of my favorite things about this tour is that we have gotten to see so many of the stars of the Belay Brothers Dragula. We saw Zavaleta and Madeline the other night. We got to see Coco from season four. We got to see Astrid as well. Formaldehyde, of course. Of course. We got to see Priscilla Chambers when we were in Nashville. We were in Texas. We got to see Zochi, Pinche, and Louisiana. I mean, divas. Those were great shows, too. I think the Zochi and Pinche one was the Dallas show, and that was another one where the energy was just through the roof. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm super happy. It's been a great experience. It's been fun to see all the fans and to meet them and interact with them and also meet all of our monsters from various seasons of the show. Absolutely. And to get all these gifts. <laughs> Jack loves the gifts. Did I mention the gifts? I love the energy. I can't deal with it. Literally, I get overwhelmed. I feed off of it like a vampire. Of course, we knew Brooklyn was going to be great. And it was. I mean, probably our best, most favorite, memorable night performing in New York. But the sleeper hit for me on the East Coast was Richmond. Oh, I mean, the kids from oh, Richmond yeah. came out yeah, in did. droves and they were ready to have a good time. Yeah. And the backstage was like kind of old art deco gothic. I was like, oh, black we- pool table, <laughs> yeah. like yes. that, that yeah. piano that we did a photo shoot at, like really, really memorable and cool. I'm like, could we just like take this over as our permanent office? Seriously. I like it. It had that kind of like 1920s, I don't know, detective kind of feel, but it was kind of opulent too. Yeah. I was into it. 
Let's talk about the fans for a minute because it's such a joy to meet them all and the stories that they share and how much the show impacts their lives and the hard times it's brought them through, which so many people talk about. I mean, have you guys had that experience where people say, We were there with you, Sherry. Well, we all don't have the same conversations, <laughs> Mrs. Smarty Pants. I mean, oh, I was standing right next okay, to you the whole time. Ian isn't. <laughs> Let me remind Jack, you're not the only one in the room, sweetie. <laughs> Ian, what about you, darling? Did anyone tell you, you any stories? Ian, oh, not you all. Holy shit. Well, thank you for asking. She wants to fight tonight, and I'm ready. Ooh, claws coming out. Just get ready for the Creature Feature movie review, everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, meeting the fans has actually been a really incredible experience and a gratifying one, too. So many people come to the meet and greets, and they have so many incredible stories to share. And I mean, honestly, the one thing that really goops me is people who love the podcast. It's cool to see that the show has touched so many people's lives in so many meaningful ways. I mean, holy shit. At the last venue, someone was like, I flew here from Japan to see this show specifically. And I was like, diva. Incredible. A lot of people flew to the New York show too. Like there was a bunch of people from Florida that came there and Louisiana. And mm-hmm. I was like, Canadians I think they were thinking like, it was going to be mm-hmm. the finale. So a lot of people came from different places to see it. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that Ian shared was this fan who came up and said, why do the boulets make you have this fake personality oh. to butter me up for oh, their meet that and That is great. my favorite yes! comment of the whole yes! tour. Oh, Unreal. What did she say to them? Okay, so just to give everyone a little bit of the context and some flavor, I am right before you meet the boulets. You kind of have to go through me. And I do like to talk to people and just to tell them, hey, are you excited for the show? What are you most excited to see? And I do that however many times the meet and greet happens. And this person comes up. And before I can even say, hi, are you excited? They go, I love that the boulets make you have this fake personality. It's just like, you know, like make us excited. And I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks. Not my fake personality. I'm just a huge homo. Thanks for that. And they were like, oh, oh, well, you, you know, you just seem really excited. I was like, well, I am. I hope you're excited for the show. Anyway, Diva, have fun. <laughs> another person... That asked the That accused question. you of having a put on well, personality. I mean, oh, <laughs> there have been quite a few in my life. I'll tell you that. But no, it's actually funny because I feel like I'm sure you guys get really weird interactions too. But two of my favorite ones, it's like one. Wow, your fake personality is crazy, which by the way, Sorry, everyone. This is just me all the time. I can vouch for that. It's true. Even though I think it would be funny if we stopped the podcast and you had a completely <laughs> different demeanor, that would be hysterical. He was like a butch dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, I love people being like, wow, you don't look anything like I thought you would look. And I'm like, that's so loaded. I'm like, what do they totally. think? Wait a minute. Put that bitch in reverse. Is that a fucking read? And they're totally. like, no, no, you're oh, just. Oh, yes, yes. Totally. They're just like, well, you're dot 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 taller and i'm like okay okay similarly people say to us you're so much prettier in person and i'm like (sighs) at first i'm like oh thank you and then i'm like i am firing the entire (laughs) fucking dp and lighting crew of our show it is not that it is they expect a lot of tv magic to be happening absolutely and a flawlessness that only tv can achieve when they say stuff like that i take it like in stride and i take it as a Huge compliment because we look good. Anyway, <laughs> the meet and greets have been really fun and really fierce and really fabulous. Yeah. What I really love is that there's been no weirdos, no horror. Well, there's, sorry, there's actually a lot of weirdos. Yeah, One of my favorites was, Swan, I love you. 
please do me a favor. Just slap me across the face as hard oh, as you can. Yeah. And I was like, darling, I won't do that. I want to save some for later. And I gave her a nice little one, but definitely not a big <laughs> one. I'm not into that at all. Like, people ask us to do stuff like that. I'm like, no. Oh, oh my God. I live for the one fan who basically tried to art direct the meet and greet. She's like, okay, now I want Drac, I want you to stand here. And then I want you to pose like this. And Swan, do this. And you're like... Uh, how about we just take this photo, sweetie? <laughs> oh, so I don't good. mind. Like usually, we'll go along with it because you know they want to meet us. They're excited. They have ideas. But if it's anything like too ridiculous, I'm just like, no, I'm not doing that. If it's like Swan, I want you to step on me and Drac pull my hair and act like you're gonna slap me in the face. We're like, of course, yes, diva. Some requests can't be denied. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as much as I would enjoy sitting here and talking about the entire tour with you both, I think we should move on to the news. As always, it is my absolute pleasure to crack open the spine of this Necronomicon and take a page from the demonic priestess of the book nook herself, Swanthula, as I transport us all to a fantasy land filled with fabulous and freakish delights, both devilish and diabolical, for the current events of tonight's episode. While my childhood was filled with alchemical workbooks and studies of eldritch abominations, most other souls were nourished with tales of imagination and wonder. But as the sun begins to fade, so too must those childhood dreams mutate into night terrors. The first tale on the table of contents in tonight's twisted fairy tale was without a doubt the biggest news in the horror world this week. The latest franchise to drum up excitement from the pages of a childhood story shocked fans of the series and horror lovers alike, with Variety announcing that Winnie the Pooh would be starring in his own brutal slasher film later this year, aptly titled Blood and Honey. Writer and director Reese Frake Waterfield led the announcement of the film this week with images of the titular Winnie the Pooh now adorned with pants and wielding a sledgehammer amongst other weapons in what fans could only assume was a tusked piglet leering at a prospective victim in a hot tub along with other grisly images. While I have loved a lot of pantsless bears in my life, Winnie the Pooh holds a special place in my honey hole, so count me in for premiere watch of this film upon its release in December. You have spoiled so many childhoods with that shit. (laughs) You and your bullshit when I can't even properly do a movie review or share how I might feel about it because you had to bring me... That honey hole <laughs> ridiculousness. Someone in the meet and greet goes, I love that Drac pointed out that all you do is sit there and giggle to yourself about the bullshit you write. And that just played in my head while I was writing. So I was like, pantsless bears. Anyways. <laughs> we did talk a little bit about this at one of the shows because someone yes. brought it up. But my hopes are high. My expectations are low. How could your hopes be high for Because this? it would be cool. I would love someone to mangle a childhood fairy tale and but turn it into is, something this crazy. Is not, it, this is not going to be that. This is not sweet. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is not is sweet. Oh, it's going to be real You know it's going to be trash, but I'm with you on this one. High hopes, really low expectations. Mm-hmm. Like I would love if this was just like gratuitously violent, fucked up brutal but i know it's just gonna be stupid are there humans in it in the preview that you saw yeah i think they're actually people in winnie the pooh and pig masks like i think they're actually people i don't really think it's like pooh bear and winnie like <laughs> oh i thought they were like making a sort of like anamorphic world oh, like claymation were, kind of thing not, i thought they would be dressed up like them but they're supposed to be real you know oh, and, like okay. i thought they were gonna like kill each other and their wonderland or wherever the hell they live the hundred acre wood honey. there you go yeah Well, anyways, let's move on. (laughs) 
Flipping the page of this darkened tome and taking things to the real world in New York City, the team behind the marketing of Netflix's Stranger Things has truly pulled out all the stops to push viewers back through the portal of the Upside Down by creating a projection lighting display across the Empire State Building to generate buzz. The light show's runtime reached the 15-minute mark, with main characters gracing the side of the building as well as new villains for the series. Stranger Things' final season has seen a bit of a rocky road, with the approved Monopoly tie-in game spoiling major plot points of the season ahead of schedule, much to the Duffer brothers' discontent. This marketing effort marks a new high for the television series, which aims to end with a bang in its final season. But personally, things could have ended with a shirtless David Harbour on the Empire State Building for 15 minutes, and I would have been satiated. We just missed that. It was mm. the day before uh, I would have in loved New to York. Have seen that. Yeah, no. I read about that hours after we missed it. I was like, damn, that would have been interesting to see. Also, what would have been interesting to see, had it been open, would have been Jekyll and Hyde oh that we my finally God. went to. For those of you at home that have listened to the podcast a lot, you know that we've been talking about it for quite a <laughs> yes, while. And much to my chagrin, the actual one that I used to go to is closed down, but there's a new version of it that's in the village, and it was also closed down. Couldn't believe it. It just wasn't in the cards for us. And it looks like it's been abandoned since Halloween because there were jack-o'-lanterns everywhere, but it was just covered in dust and cobwebs and closed. But also kind of creepy because the lights were on, and there was, I mean, definitely someone's cane on the corner of the bar. Yeah, like someone just got done drinking, and they just, like, left. For our final tale, I'd like to draw attention to the stars, the void amongst the infinity and beyond. I'm referring to the latest photos reported back from NASA's Curiosity rover, which showed a mysterious doorway structure on the surface of Mars. The internet exploded with theories of alien life and what could have made such a perfect doorway on the Martian planet, but others were skeptical, pointing out that the angle of the photo made the erosion of the planet's face seem more like a doorway than it truly was. My personal take is that we're just not ready for disclosure, but maybe that's just a bit of terrifying wishful thinking on my part. There was another thing a while ago that they were like, we found a pyramid on the moon. Or was it the moon or Mars? I think it was Mars. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, they just moved the camera a little bit and it was like a little rock. I was like, just stop. I don't know, though, because I'm like, what the hell are we supposed to do? Like, as regular ass people, what are we just going to say? Okay, well, at face value, I have to believe what the government tells me. Teehee. Mama, there be aliens, they be on Mars, they be fucking it up. But don't you think if they were trying to hide it, they would have seen the picture and been like, duh, let's not put this one out. I don't know. I mean, like I said, maybe we're Oops. not. Let's <laughs> release a picture of a Martian structure and then pretend like it's a rock. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, when Britney Spears flew to Mars for that video, like, you know, they filmed it there. Then they had to, you know, hide the whole thing. Like, it happens. Well, I think there probably are aliens, but I do not think any of these pictures are of aliens or alien structures. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to be digging into this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. Stay tuned. Attention, misfits, mutants, and outcasts. The Boulay Brothers want you to join the cult now by visiting BoulayBrothersDragula.com where everything from the world of the Boulay Brothers can be found. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter for insider updates, learn more about upcoming projects, and access tons of Boulay Brothers and Boulay Brothers Dragula exclusive merchandise. Visit us now at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Do it or die.
Welcome back, uglies, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. For this episode of the podcast, we've chosen director Alex Garland's newest film, Men. A story about a woman named Harper, played by Jesse Buckley, who, in the aftermath of a personal tragedy, retreats alone to the beautiful English countryside, hoping to find a place to heal. However, someone or something from the surrounding woods appears to be stalking her. What begins as simmering dread soon becomes fully formed nightmare, inhabited by her darkest memories and fears. This conversation is going to be filled with spoilers, so if you'd like to experience the film untainted by our superior views, you can skip ahead now. You've been warned. Okay, let's start where we always start, at the beginning with first impressions. Drac? I think it was very slow. In an unexpected way. I went in blind. I didn't have any idea what this was about. I didn't watch any previews. I didn't read anything about it, which is my new favorite thing, by the way. And I encourage everyone to do that. 100%. Yeah. I knew it was from A24, so I'm like, I'll probably like it. I don't like everything they do, but I do enjoy about 96% of their content. So I assumed I would like it, and I was glad I didn't know what it was about. I will say I expected it to be more of a horror movie than I think it turned out to be. And I think it was quiet and slow. I'm going to pull inspiration from a similar world of Drac on this one. Personally, I love Alex Garland's films. Before we saw Men, we were talking about some of his other work that I really love. Like, I love Annihilation. Ex Machina is fabulous. We've already reviewed 28 Days Later on the podcast. So I went in with, I think, high expectations, Mm -hmm. but also just wanting to know what was going to happen. And overall, I have to say that I didn't love men. I thought that there were a lot of interesting ideas, and I do like the blend of fantasy as opposed to sort of science fiction. However, ultimately, the film left me frustrated, but not in the way that I think it was intended to be frustrating. Hmm. And how about you? I think a little bit of the amalgamation of both views, because I thought the first, what felt like 30 or 45 minutes, was slow And it was so somber and paced that I felt almost like under a spell a little bit, but not necessarily one that I thought was interesting or fun. It did go to very fantasy-driven places, some primal places that I really enjoyed. And I think I kind of liken it to a song that Mm -hmm. I like parts of, but not necessarily. I would say, I love that song. I just love parts of that song. And that's how I felt about men. I really didn't love the song of the movie, but there were certain parts of the chorus and the high notes that I really enjoyed and made the movie memorable. It took a long time for the movie to get into any sort of horror or scary territory. And I felt like once it did, it was not effective because the people in the theater laughed. And Mm. it's when the guy follows her back and he's Mm -hmm. naked and he just really didn't seem very threatening. And it almost seemed silly. And people were laughing when you were seeing him outside where I know they intended it to be scary. See, I like this conversation because I think horror and things that are air quotes scary are so subjective. Because for me, I was annoyed by the people around me, the snickering, childish snickering, like, like, what am I in like elementary school? I thought it was ridiculous. It made my skin crawl for the human race, frankly, because like, we can't deal with a nude man. I mean, please, let me move somewhere else. But I found it scary. I found her being threatened in that way just by the presence of another person. Fearful. Because you didn't realize he was naked at first. It was like silhouetted down that tunnel. And I'm like, okay, she's threatened. As a woman, she was threatened by Mm -hmm. just the presence of someone else and being alone. And I kind of felt that threat once that happened through the rest of the film. It's interesting because to me, that is one of the differences I think we have about this film is that 
It's important, I think it's important as a filmmaker to get your idea across, to communicate to as many people as possible what you're trying to say. And I think you can appreciate more interpretive and subtle themes, right? And so that's the same thing with this naked person. Like to me, I'm like, if you want to use this person as something to inspire fear in people, I just think it was not done well, you know? Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm going to kind of take a little bit of a middle road here, but I'm also going to liken it back to our conversation about the Northman, where the question was posed, is the film scary? And I had said in that review that I didn't necessarily think that the Northman was a horror film, but I did think that it would have been fucking mega scary if you just lived in that village. Yeah. And kind of similar to what you're saying, Swan, I wasn't scared by the presence of this naked man. However, I did think, oh, that would be very scary if you were alone in a house and you just turned around there was some naked guy out there who looks very disheveled and kind of just unwell. That would be really scary. But I didn't necessarily think that it was done well in the film. I was so annoyed. I agree with you, Swan. I was like, can everyone just please be quiet? Because it's also a very quiet and somber film. Yeah. Yeah, the tone is a powerful element of the movie. So when Miss Thing to the right was like shuffling through her popcorn for like what felt like 20 minutes, I was like, bitch, finish the popcorn. Please (laughs) allow me to enjoy this fucking movie. It was kind of a comedy though. Okay, (laughs) because we had to see this on the road. We usually go to Alamo or places where it's like a little more sophisticated. It's quieter, but Mm -hmm. we had to just go to, you know, regular Yeah, where they have rules in place for social rejects like the people that shared the theater with us. Well, yeah, I think they were there to see a horror movie on a Friday night and not necessarily, they didn't sign up for what, this movie was. Yeah, I agree with you. I do think that for those who were going to see a horror movie on a Friday night with their friends, I think that the film's marketing didn't really indicate that it was that sort of movie. So I'm not 100% sure why they were there expecting it to be like that. But because I did watch the trailer for this. And after watching the trailer, I was like, "Ooh, bitch, like this looks so scary. And it's going to be a commentary on the way that women are treated and the experiences of women in the world. And I do think that that is ultimately part of what the film is. But I really felt like the editing in the trailer made this movie a hundred times scarier than what it actually ended up being, which I thought was more of like a slow burn fantasy with some kind of nightmare elements. Mm -hmm. If you're going to make a heady movie like this, that's what you're going to do. If you believe in your product and you think that what you've created is good and can stand on its own, why market it like something Mm -hmm. that people don't expect? Uh, I don't understand that because it's like I feel like I was tricked. Even though I didn't look into, I didn't watch the trailers and all that, but the hype around it and the vibe was, this is a horror movie. This is going to be a scary horror movie. And what I felt like I got tricked into, and I was not in the mindset (laughs) for it, was a New York Times crossword. I was like, (laughs) the puzzle movie. It's a puzzle. It's like, it's a puzzle. Put on your thinking cap. This is going to hurt and try to figure this out. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> because we had been on tour. I was no, it exhausted. was like that, yeah. too. I was it like, was. we're going to do the podcast. We need to watch this movie. And I'm not saying I, I didn't appreciate it. Or maybe I could have appreciated it in a different situation. It's just not what I expected. And I'm like, look, if I made a movie like that, I would want people to come and watch it who wanted that kind of movie and would appreciate it. I would not trick everybody into you would coming say, to see it. My name is Guillermo del Toro. Welcome to my puzzle movie. <laughs> yeah, because they're going to get mad. Yes! They're going to get mad. And I knew it. When we were sitting there, there's something about the color in the house, the, that <laughs> oh red room and the red wall. I don't know what it was. I was like, oh my God, it's one of those movies. I was like, it's like Mother. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of Mother, I do want to respond to what you're talking about with the marketing, which I don't necessarily know if Alex Garland 
was the one to sign off on the marketing for this. Because I think that at that level, there are sometimes a lot of decisions being made where it's not necessarily the director of the film who is making these decisions. Like, for example, David Fincher and Chuck Palahniuk did not have a say in the marketing of Fight Club. And Fight Club is marketed like, it's bros fighting shirtless. And the movie and the book are literally not about that at all. And so, you know, people were tricked into going to see what they thought was going to be like bros fighting and it's actually like a puzzle movie. Well, that's because we all have different jobs and different levels of control. Yeah. And luckily for us, the content we create, we also control the marketing. Yes. So this guy's, you know, his job was to create something soulful and like scary and a commentary about whatever he wanted to comment on. But then there were other people's jobs to like, hey, we need, we need to, make to make you see this movie. Well, yeah. We want to make you see this movie. in terms of A24, I find their trailers to be pretty tonally accurate right i don't usually feel like i'm getting misled by them maybe a little bit with saint maud right oh invoke her name because i know you were very excited about saint maud from the trailer and i saw through it but you know not everyone did Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then it was like maybe a little trickery but this one was full-blown bag over your head trickery It, it was i mean i will say that also, you referenced Mother, and this is something that the three of us, we had a kiki after the film, so this is kind of our second time talking about it, but I've been thinking a lot about Mother in relation to this film, because it's kind of the only other film that I can say, oh, this reminded me similarly in tone, because Mother also marketed as a horror movie, but right. not really a horror movie. I mean, yes, it is a horror movie for those listening at home. It, don't go anything like, oh, it's like Roses and Sunshine, but I kind of felt like this was similar in the sense that it was like, Elements of it are fantastical, and it's like, does this take place in the real world? What of it is, quote-unquote, real? And I think for me, the big difference is with Mother, which is a film that I love, the explosive moment of that film literally had my jaw on the ground. I was like, oh my fucking God, I can't believe I'm seeing this, which I think for me made it worth it. Whereas with Men, I was kind of like waiting for it to just explode, and it just kind of never happened, even though there's some graphic birth in the movie, which I was like, diva, No, I there's some ready. crazy stuff, and I will enjoy a movie like this way more than Drac, just to take that kind of comparison. If it makes you think, if you have to work at it and try to dig through the symbolism to try to find the meaning that the creator intended, I really usually enjoy movies like that, and I love to kind of peel back that mystery. But when we did our two-word movie reviews, as we did on some of the live <laughs> versions of the podcast, when we were traveling for the tour, we did a two-word review of Men the other night in Brooklyn, and Track kind of threw that curveball at me, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. And my two words were annoyingly cerebral, because it was. It didn't bloom into something beautiful and profound. Yeah. It kind of picked at your brain for two hours. It exploded into this body horror, which I think we'll get to, because that was one of the most successful things I thought. Some Absolutely. of the fantasy horror imagery and some of the body horror was just beyond anything that I've ever really seen in the world of body horror. It's weird. It is a horror movie, as Mother is a horror movie too, right? There's all kinds of different horror movies. You can have really campy ones. You can have a movie like this, which it's horror in a different way, right? But I almost felt like watching this movie, I almost wanted it to go a different way. I'm like, well, I want to see this girl work through this stuff. This happened with her husband. Like, I started thinking this was a drama. I'm like, okay, let's work through this. But You didn't really get that. You didn't really get anything, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe this is a segue or if maybe it's like my wishful thinking. I almost feel like it's a little bit of a strange film to digest because watching it, it's obvious that, hi, this is a film in which there is one woman who is being haunted by all of these men who are the same man. And there are themes about the way that women are treated and also grief and these things. But it's also written and directed by Alex Garland. And I've seen other people talk about kind of the idea of like, does this film actually escape 
the male gaze. While I was watching, I was kind of like, oh... Ugh, is this a story that should have been told by a woman? By told by yeah. a woman, yeah. exactly. I think so. I, I think the answer is yes. And I think some of the symbolism and some of the meaning is so clear. Like she walks into the English house. She walks into the garden. She picks an apple. She yeah. eats it and meets a man. The man's face who will repeat because Rory, Rory Kinnear plays all of the men in this movie except for like one or two of them. Sometimes his face is CGI'd on younger people and sometimes it looks like it's prosthetics, but she meets him, eats the apple, and it's like this parallel of like even the garden. And I think that the obvious meaning is that men's traumas are women's fault. Like that's mm, yeah. what it is over and over. And it repeats throughout. And there's also this other idea that men's traumas are generational. They pass down from one to the next to the next until you can figure out how to heal it. And in the end, we still get the same message that we got at the beginning, which is it's the woman's fault. And it's almost like ridiculous. It doesn't serve itself. Well, I want to go back to what you both were saying about should a man be able to write a story like this and I sort of feel torn about that right because I don't like the idea of identity because I've heard this discussion be had before about queer stories right like they're like a straight person should not play a queer person or a straight writer shouldn't write a story about queer people what do you all think about that I don't think that it is black and white I think that's a little bit of a gray area, and I do think that people should be able to create art and to create work that has meaning if they have done the research and if they feel as though what they're doing and what they're creating is meaningful. Not saying that what Alex Garland has done is not meaningful, because like I said, I love Alex Garland's other work. I think he's done a lot of amazing things. I just wondered sometimes, like as a man watching this film written by a man, directed by a man, am I getting the full picture of what I should be getting here. Like, is the commentary being made 100% accurate? Like, I had made the analogy of, I wish that the sword it would have cut with would have been scalpel sharp because I felt like it didn't really go anywhere almost. And maybe that's the thing, right? Because I also felt there was an inauthenticness to the film the whole time. We spoke about this. Like, I found the main character to be sort of unrelatable and unlikable. And I was like, why is that? It's not the actress. And I think it's the lack of depth that he wrote her with right and maybe that's mm. because he's not a woman it almost seems like sort of tropes that you're like this is what it would bother me if i was a woman I could but agree i'm like with it that. doesn't yeah. seem authentic you know well, did he really tell us anything that a woman couldn't have told us better with this movie you know i did want to mention one particular scene that i thought was worth the price of admission for me even though most of the movie was kind of annoying and slow and not very satisfying but it's very late in the movie and we have gone into this cerebral kind of space where we're seeing shadows dance across sculptures of the green man and these obviously female figures. And our main character is back in the garden and in walks that intruder that was sort of stalking her at the beginning of the movie, whether he was really scary or not. And he's gone through this physical transformation of becoming the green man. There are leaves sort of jammed in his forehead and thorns projecting from his shoulders and blood everywhere. He's so menacing, I thought there was going to be a physical attack right then and there, but it shifted, and he reached down, we move into this slow motion sequence, and he grabs one of those dandelion weeds and put it up to his lips and just blows the seeds into the air across the garden, where our main character inhales them and falls backward, kind of going into this psycho, cerebral, scary sequence that the movie adopts and continues with after that point. And I really just looked at this as, I'm not even sure if it added to meaning, intended meaning, but we had this primal male figure putting seed into our main character and sending her into this kind of like 
different mental space. Yeah, you're making me think about that scene in particular. And because, of course, you know, there is this element of, okay, a male character is putting his seed into a woman. And there's kind of, like, obvious connotations to that. But it also makes me think about what you said of, oh, you know, he blows on the dandelion weed. And just by the simple act of inhaling, the seed goes inside of her. And maybe that is potentially a commentary on just kind of the almost, like, ubiquitous nature of the way that men kind of impart their trauma or kind of impart their sort of like these like negative things onto women. It's almost like a natural process that happens, whether that's through culture or through just the way that men have been conditioned to treat women. It was so easy. And, you know, because mm. she also avoids that same seed earlier in the film when she's kind of walking and she sees the naked man pre-transformation. There's a dandelion seed that's floating in the air, but she is about to kind of walk directly into it and then she misses it. Mm, that's, yeah, you're right. But you know, there was also that foreshadowing of the dandelion seed going into the eye socket oh, of the, the deer. deer. Yeah. So there's something, I mean, I would assume they're trying to say something there, but who knows what it was. Yeah, well, you had said something along those lines of, I shouldn't have to unpack everything if you are going to create a film with meaning you should put that meaning forward and it should be easily digestible by your audience and i sort of agree with that i do think that it is personally fun to have a little bit of a puzzle movie sometimes but this is also making me think i'm like okay i don't love the feeling of watching a film and saying i don't understand what's happening and i did think that there were certain times watching men where i was like okay I feel like I'm following along pretty well, and I'm happy to let certain things just be imagery. The seed goes into the deer, and then when we come right back out of its eye socket, it's further decomposed. And I'm happy to leave some things to just be like, hey, that's fucked up looking, and that's cool. But there are other things I'm like, I wish I understood more about this, but I also don't feel like having an encyclopedic knowledge of everything, all the themes. I don't want to have to. That's the annoyingly cerebral that I was referring to, because it evokes time and like Mm -hmm. cyclical natures of things. When shadows pass over sculptures or we go into an orifice of a kind of partially decayed animal and then when we come out seconds later, it's like months had passed. So you Mm -hmm. get this idea of like an eternal story. But sweetie, this was not it because I don't think the beef (laughs) of the tail is really like adding up to like an eternal story. Where is the beef? Where is the beef? I mean, I want to say I don't think everything has to be communicated so easily. Like It's great for a movie to make you think, right? That's what all art should do. But Not to the point where maybe it doesn't really mean anything, because I wonder when I think about this movie, did they just do things to do it? Like, was there really any meaning in it? And I really feel like it's a little bit empty. I do. We get to the body horror, which is this unbelievable sequence at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like nothing I've ever really seen. Visually stunning. Yeah. Kind of shocking. It took the breath out of me for a minute, kind of like not really believing what I was seeing and then what I continued to see what felt like 15 minutes but then it sort of get to this gratuitous place and then it kind of got to this place where it almost felt unnecessary yeah well and again this entire review is spoiler heavy but i'm just gonna fucking spoil this right now the male character the green man kind of falls to his knees and then gives birth in a very graphic representation of birth and the first time it happened i was like i cannot believe we're seeing this amazing yes holy shit do this And then the character that is birthed from him is another man played by Rory Kinnear. And he gives birth to another man who then gives birth to a third. And by the third time, I was like, okay, I'm desensitized to this. It doesn't have the same punch. 
I've spoken out also about the misuse of that crackling bone sound that we need to let go <laughs> in other movies. Every time, I can't help it. When I see a camera sort of rest on a scene and someone starts moving weird and you hear that uh-huh. I'm like, please, please don't do that. Please don't do that. We've done this enough. And I felt that way during the birth scene. I'm like, maybe a slurp or a slop sound. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Just not the... I'm like, oh my please God. stop it. Not to invoke <laughs> other films, but I did mention this in the last episode. I do think that, kind of like we talked about before, like sometimes you have to be in the right headspace to see certain movies. Mm. And I wonder if this is a film that if I would have seen it at a different time, maybe when we weren't on tour or having such like a kind of crazy adventures, like would it impact me differently? Or if I hadn't had just seen a film that was kind of the polar opposite in terms of horror, like I just watched this movie called The Sadness and it is like balls to the wall, action horror the whole time. And I was like, oh, I love this. Then to go to a film like Men, which is very slow and very somber. I was kind of like, oh, I can normally really appreciate a film like this, but it just didn't go there for me. I don't know. You know what? We don't have to like every movie we watch, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe if I was on a farm after a month of sleeping and having some <laughs> calm life, maybe I could have appreciated more. But guess what? I'm not. Guess what, Mimi? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that. Yeah. Well, I think we have shared all of our feelings about Alex Garland's newest film, Men. Take what you will and leave what you don't like. But that is it for this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. We are going to be reaching into our bag of listener mail to answer some of your burning questions. But before we do, it's time for another quick break. Welcome back, darlings. Now our mailbox is literally overflowing with your questions, which we love to see. So we've carved out some extra time to try and get to them all. Ian, will you do the honors? Leah from Milwaukee writes, Disney has been cranking out, quote, villain redemption films such as Cruella and Maleficent. Who, in your humble opinion, is a villain who absolutely deserves their own film? I'm going to go with a weird one here. Oh, lay it on And I don't think, it would never happen. I don't care. I would love to see it. I want to see a Madame Medusa movie. I knew what? you were yep. going to say that. Madame Medusa <laughs> from The Rescuers. That's who I want oh to see a movie. Yes. I mean, there's something about that character that is very real. Right? Legitimately scary right. as hell. And yeah. not really this flattering, glamorous diva. That's like someone who's pissed off and has had a <laughs> lot of crazy shit happen to them. And I want to know what it was. Oh, she's like already borderline insane. She's got her eyes bugging out, the shotgun, <laughs> crocodile pets. I'm like, what more do you need? The diamonds. You yeah, found I love it. it. Yeah, it's so good. And I just want to put my two cents in. I hate, and I mean hate. The villain redemption movies. Let the villains mm, be yeah. the villains. Oh my god, I'll feel the same way. I'm like, let them be bad. Although I will say, if I had to pick one, Mama Diva, I want Jafar just fagging <laughs> out. God, I want her just like, oh yes, God, oh Princess Jasmine, yes. <laughs> like, let her be crazy. Who will be the next villain redemption movie? Me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, we talked about that with Cruella. And I started thinking at three quarters of the way through Cruella, I was like, oh, they're going to make the mom the villain. Mm. Uh, The mom was the villain. Yes, she was. So that was ridiculous. One of your big Disney villains 
Here's her story. She's actually good, and the mom is bad. Well, you just created a new villain who I guess you're going to have to make a movie about how she's good later. Now, listen, Cruella <laughs> did tweak the same queer nerve that the Devil Wears Prada tweaked in me because her mm. as kind of a fashion icon, I was a little into it. The mom was more like Miranda Priestly than she was. Oh, the mom undeniably was the villain of the movie. She was like way more evil and rotten to the core. And I relate to throwing them <laughs> off. I mean, there's some of the competitors on the show. I also would yeah, throw them just off throw the them side. off the side. Oh my God. Kimbo from Phoenix asks, what is your single greatest personal regret and why? That is a very large question, and I think I would have to give it some thought. I tend to not look at my life with regrets because I think mistakes are what makes you great, right? You can't learn anything. Obviously, none of us know anything when we're born, so you make mistakes, and then you sort of learn from them and adapt. I think the biggest regret anyone should have is not learning from their mistakes or not embracing the fact that they're fallible and that they make mistakes in the first place. That's how you learn. And become more powerful. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is growing hurts. If you just lived in a little bubble and nothing hurt you, you would never learn or change or grow. And I don't look at my life like with regret. I look back and can cringe at myself and be like, oh, I wish that went another way. Or, oh, that's a painful thing for me to bear. I tend to believe that everything happens for a reason. And when pain or an obstacle comes into your life, as much as it sucks, you need to experience that to get to the next place. I will give this little tidbit of advice. It was advice that I was given at a very young age. I was very into my career at a very young age. You all know my personality. I'm very black and white. And I don't mean it rudely. I'm like, if you're doing a bad job, you're doing a bad job. Well, this guy told me once, he was like, you have to be a politician. You have to be a politician. And I just didn't understand him. I'm like, why? Because I basically became the editor-in-chief of this magazine at a very young age. And I was like, okay, well, these people are terrible. They should be fired. And they were undisputably terrible. They were terrible. (laughs) And he even admitted it. But there's more to it, right? There's more Mm -hmm. to business than that. And he'd be like, well, yes, but who's going to do that job for this amount of money? And how about this person is doing this? And this one's dating that one. So if you get rid of that, I'm like, okay, sure. Like, it took me a long time to understand that. But I think that that's – we talked about this recently when certain people – perhaps that work on a tour or who knows are given a level of power and they're not really sure how to deal with it. They think, Oh, well I have power. So I'm the queen or King. And so my job is to push everyone around and no darling, anyone that has power knows that you are more of a servant than a dictator. And I think that's a lesson that people should learn. So a regret might be that you wish you had learned that sooner. Yes, absolutely. Eric asks, I was wondering if anyone you've met on tour so far has said any rude or mean comments to you. I mean, I think we're lucky because the answer is no. People come to a Dragula show and they want to forget the world that they leave outside and enter a world where you can really be exactly what you want to be and go insane and watch incredible artists do incredible things. And we're very well received. So I'd say no. I do want to add something. I haven't seen anything rude happen to the Blaze or to myself, and I'm very thankful. But I have heard a little bit of just kind of comments here and there from some of the competitors. If you are coming to a meet and greet and you have favorites, I think that's great because everyone has their favorites. But I don't think that that should give you a license to say something negative to someone else who is standing right there. Like, be kind. You're in a meet and greet and that person has feelings too. Everyone's an artist. And yeah. I want to hear the real tea, Bora. Yeah. What did you hear? Okay, so someone came to a meet and greet and was like going down the line and was like, oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then like, turned to someone on our cast and was like, 
and I mean, I guess you're here. And I like, like they told me that later, and they were really upset by it. And I was like, that fucking sucks. Like, if wow. I would have heard that, I mean, Mama, I would have like crane kicked over and been like, get the fuck out of here. That is so weak. It's that crap. is so weak to me because the four competitors here. First of all, I love them all, and yeah. I think that they deserve all the accolades that they're getting. But they open themselves up to share who they are and what they've created with like hundreds of people on this tour, mm-hmm. thousands of people. So to take that little opportunity to do that. I don't know. I find it almost childish. People will sometimes come up to us and will say, well, you're my favorite, or they'll just look at you. You know what I mean? Like, people do get a little weird, but they're usually not disrespectful about it. And I don't think their intention is. I mean, this person sounds like Yeah, this person sounds like a dick. But, and I don't take that personally either. I don't either. They're excited. If they're showering you with, like, I love you, I see myself in you, I get excited for them. I don't take it personally. Word asks, what's your opinion on drag terrorists like Christine? Do you know her or similar drag artists? How do you feel about her? And do you think that this type of art would fit well on the Boulay Brothers Dragula? I think there's people that have been on Dragula already that are kind of like that. Like, I think uh, Disasterina sort of like that, right? She's a full character. All the time. Yeah, all mm-hmm. the time. And that's just a certain type of drag. And I definitely think there's a space for it everywhere. Yeah, we do know Christine. I do love that kind of drag. I kind of like anyone who expresses themselves to 150%, and I definitely think Christine falls into that category. Squeaky Blonde would be another character, Phaedra oh, yeah. Faye. Even someone like Dina Martina, it's like For you're, sure. it's like you're yeah. on your own planet. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> there was one time Christine was telling me a story, and she was like, yeah, I was, uh, I was really, really late for a gig, and I was on a flight, and I had to get ready for the gig on the flight. And for those of you who don't know, just Google Christine and her drag, and it is wild. So she's getting in full Christine drag on this plane. And apparently the woman next to her just immediately started, like, pulled out her Bible and was, like, (laughs) praying. I was like, yes! You know where I think it gets confusing is when people, drag artists like that who are very in character all the time, sort of live as their character online and then comment about topical social things, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's like, is this the character speaking or is your person coming through? And if your person is coming through, does that betray your character? I always Mm. think that's a little weird. Stephen from Washington wants to know, My question for you, Ian included, is what would it take to convince you to face off against me in a friendly game of Warhammer 40k? I would love to see how well you do with a fully fleshed out Slanesh army. <laughs> Damn. You ask for your own demise. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Nicole asks, If y'all weren't doing what you were doing now, kicking ass as drag super monsters, what normal careers do you think you'd be in? I have the side fantasy gig that I wish I could live in sometimes if I wanted to be away from the city, drag, any other people on the planet Earth. Like, I would love to work in a nursery where I am around plants only. <laughs> no people at all. Are there with be like, customers or no? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe like not a necessarily. Garden. Yes, like a botanical garden would be like a go. dream. Ooh. Or even just a nursery that sells plants and there's just cats and little animals running around some wind chimes and like leave me the fuck alone (laughs) (laughs) what about you oh god i hate that i actually know the career i think i would be really good at well because when i was a teenager i moonlit as a best buy employee when i was in a guild wars guild and i was 13 (laughs) more on that moment every time i go to best buy like it's like hard to find employee i'm like 
I would run this bitch like the fucking military. <laughs> I feel I would be a great manager of a Best Buy. <laughs> oh my god! Wow, <laughs> we are really spilling the deep tea. <laughs> I don't know what career I would do. I mean, I can imagine a lifestyle I would lead. I will say it would definitely be something that is not in the public at all. Zero fame, like total anonymity. Don't want you to see me. Don't want you to look at me. I don't want to look at you. Just being alone on a farm somewhere would be fabulous with a lot of cute animals. <laughs> Brett from Houston asks, what is your favorite part of touring? What is your least favorite? And why does Ian run around the building like a mad woman all during the show? I kept seeing him everywhere. <laughs> Because Ian runs the show. Yeah, we Ian always say it. Strings. That's why we bring him out on stage at the end. He's a huge part of yeah. making the show run. For the bows at the end and the callback, we always bring out Ian. And I say he helps us cast the spells, pulls all the strings. And without her, we couldn't do it. Yeah. What are each of your favorite and least favorite part of touring? I think my least favorite part is just the lack of sleep. It's important. And like, if you're getting crappy sleep and you're working a ton, it just leads to just not the best time. I'd, I'd have to think for a minute on my, my favorite. Okay. Part. So that's your least favorite. So what about your least favorite? Yeah. We talked a little bit about this earlier today when we were having a meeting. I think my least favorite part of touring is just the very abrupt life shift that happens. Touring is fabulous in a lot of ways, but it asks a lot of you just kind of underneath the surface. And I feel like that is that's a hard thing to adjust to. Even when you get into that rhythm, it's sort of like living a very transient life for a minute. And yeah. that is probably my least favorite part. For me, it's getting in drag every day. Like, I like it once I'm in drag and we're performing. I like that, but I don't like changing 500 times. I just don't like sitting there and painting for two and a half, three hours every day. I think that's the part that I like the least. If I could just spin and be in my costume or someone will change me or something, <laughs> that would be great. And I also hate waiting in between the shows, Ooh, right? So it's yeah. like you do a meet and greet, then you have to wait an hour. Then you yeah. do show one, then you have to wait 40 minutes. I don't like that. I'm like, let's just do it all and be done. I'd say my favorite part is performing and watching other people perform. I have a theater background. I've been on stage since I was a little kid. So I love being on stage. It gives me a thrill like no other. I think I have two, maybe three favorite parts, which is, I mean, hi, can they all be favorites? Maybe. My first favorite would be, and again, we talked about this earlier, for those of you who have seen the live show, there's this moment where the voiceover is introducing the Belay Brothers and it's your mistresses of ceremony, the diabolical. And there's just kind of this like two second moment where I know what's coming, and but the crowd doesn't. It's like, the Boulay Brothers, and you just hear people lose their minds, and it's so incredible to be a part of this show and of that magic, and then you, the Boulay's hit the stage, and it is like a wall of sound, and it really, it makes me emotional if I think about it. Speaking of being emotional, I'm a Scorpio, so I'm going to go here. <laughs> you know, I think really one of my favorite parts of the tour is getting to do Creatures of the Night with the both of you. I love being with you guys. I love working with you. And it's just fun. Like, I think if my least favorite part is the transient nature and the craziness, we ground each other in yeah, certain ways. And I really, I love that. And I appreciate that a lot. Similarly, one of my favorite parts of doing the tour is doing it with the two of you because we have a lot of fun together. Yeah. And we get along really good. So to me, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be as fun at oh, all. No. It is just a fun ride the whole time. Even if we're in bad <laughs> moods, it's funny somehow. <laughs> it kooky, it spooky, yeah, it's, it's all a lot of fun. And then the other part is, I mean, there's a lot of parts I love about her. I wouldn't do it, but one of the more favorable parts is seeing the competitors and knowing that they're experiencing this because of 
what we put into making this possible, right? Yeah. Because when we first started the show, we had no idea where it was going to go, even though we had a strong hunch of where it was going to go and what we wanted to do with it. We didn't know. And it's been a long, painful, and sadistic journey to get here and to be able to give them this cushy experience in these big green rooms and let them perform in front of thousands of people every night and make money and just be stars. That makes me feel good because I'm like, mission accomplished. We yeah. did it, you know? You know, one thing on that note that I'm just going to give a shout out to the top four of the season, Dolly, Hoso, Saint, Sigourney, you're all fucking stars. You're amazing. One of the things I really love and appreciate about them is that they are appreciative and they're vocal about it too. Yeah. Like Saint the other day was like, before I was doing this, I mean, I was working 50 hours a week at IHOP and now I'm traveling the world living my dream. And I was like, Saint, that is the best thing you could have told me. Yeah. Like, I just it. fucking they, love it. They, they all deserve do. it. And right down the line, Dali says similar things. Hoso is mm -hmm. like transformed before our very eyes and Sigourney as well. Like she's all always, them. so like my dreams are coming true. And that is so beautiful to be a part of, help facilitate, just be next to. It's all creative energy. And then there's me on stage. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Louis from the UK asks, when did you both first feel successful and what does success mean to you? They're going deep tonight, aren't they? Wow. I think questions like that would really take time and the answer could even change depending on when it's asked. When I think back right now, when we were first cutting our teeth in the nightlife world and doing things that no one around us was doing. And in fact, people were looking down their nose and I know what they were thinking. Like, Oh God, like you're, this is just destined to fail. And then that project ends up going on and lasting for years and becoming like a hugely influential force in our city. And then that energy just continues on in our state. And then we went from state to state. And then we went from state to TV. And when I think back in those moments where I was like, bitch, I'm doing what I want. And that is success for me. Not feeling like I'm beholden to some situation that I hate or doing something that I can't stand or something that just like kills me on the inside. Even when I didn't have a lot of money. I just had good people around me and I was doing what I wanted to do. That was success. Yeah. I don't think success, success to me isn't like an accolade or an award or a big house or a certain amount of money. It's really about freedom. That's what success means to me. The freedom to not have to spend your days doing something that you don't want to be doing and the freedom to express yourself by writing a story that shows up in a comic book or creating a TV show that you're like, hey, let's get together with your friends and come up with these fun ideas and then be able to put it out there and have people appreciate it. Like, I think that's what success is because for me, it's not like dinging a certain thing, right? Like, because I don't think I ever feel that. I don't know if I'll ever feel like, ooh, I'm successful now. I'm a fabulous celebrity. And I, you know, like I'll never, I will never feel that because I think I always keep moving the goal. Goalposts, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you? Again, I'm going to take a page, I think, out of both of your books. I think that success is kind of an ever-moving thing. I think that it's important to appreciate when you do succeed. I guess I would have to say that success feels like defeating a really big boss in a video game, where even if it was really hard and you had to use all your potions to get there, and you're like, damn, I had to level grind for 500 hours to get here, but then you do it, and you're like, I did it. We did it. Our team did it. And I remember that feeling after season three when they said, that's a wrap. I literally, and hi, everyone, here's a glimpse of how weird my life is sometimes. I went outside and I have the crown and it's covered in blood. And I just looked up as a full moon and I just shrieked into the night. I was like, <laughs> ah! I was like, we fucking did it. 
And even though the season hadn't come out, it hadn't been edited yet, I was like, we did it. We finished this season. But it's like, okay, and on to the next chapter. Close that chapter, move on to the next one. And I don't know. I feel successful every time an episode comes out. You got to appreciate the shit, you know? <laughs> no, I totally agree. And celebrate the victories as you go along. Yeah. We like to work a lot, and it's easy to forget the victories. But when you were talking about drinking the potions and getting to the next level, I was like, success was when I beat Bloodborne, and I shrieked out into the <laughs> night. <laughs> oh, my God. Literally me. <laughs> You know what? Tonight's just going to be a, we're going to go off and make it a long episode. Go off, sheesh. Okay, talking about video games. When you defeat a video game, when you win, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you won? Like I always feel like I'm sad that it's over. I'm always like, oh, damn, it's over. It depends on the game, and it depends on what's happening. Like, there have been video games I have completed that I have felt that way of kind of like, wow, like that experience is done, and I'll never be able to experience it for the first time again. But kind of like Swan said, defeating bosses in Bloodborne or from software games, I mean, there's just a fucking dopamine rush that I get because it's like in Bloodborne specifically, you defeat the enemy and then they just explode in this rain of gore and it's like prey slaughtered. And I'm like, ooh, bitch, I'm bad, diva. Ooh, my pussy is tight tonight. How about you when you win? Do you feel like that when you beat a video game? It's so weird because I'm listening to you guys talk and I'm realizing, you know, I've been into video games since I was a child. I love video games too, but I've only really played like MMOs for years Mm. that you really just can't beat. Right. The only thing that I can liken it to is like if you're raiding, right? Let's let's like what about PvP? Let's diddle the nussy. Oh, oh, diva! Let's go into PvP. Start the PvP. (laughs) Because let's talk. Yeah. You know I fucking love PvP. Sulit <laughs> is a PvP queen. I am the I am and, a PvP queen. You know how some queen. people like I'm in a PvP and they have like a chip on their shoulder. That's not her. She's quiet and deadly and will kill everybody and will never <laughs> brag about it and will wear this humble little brown outfit yes. and then destroy yes. everyone. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, my temperature started rising because when you reminded me, PvP is you winnable. Don't, you don't want it. This thing. It's, it's funny, it reminds me of, I don't play League of Legends anymore, but when I did play League of Legends, it's only PvP, and I got pretty good with one of the characters, and people are so toxic online, and the second they find out you're gay, oh, you know, it's like you couldn't be, you know, you're disgusting, whatever. And girl, when I would be dominating, it'd be like, pentakill, I'd be like, oh yeah, divas, you fucking love that? Uh? <laughs> and it's just like, I get off on it so much. Or like when I'm playing Destiny and it's like, boom, headshot. I'll literally go over and like side sit emote. And I'm just like, mm, yeah. <laughs> and it just always, Holy that makes shit. me feel successful. I live when I'm playing so frequently that I'll enter an arena, a random arena, like Guild Wars 2, for example. And it'll be like, oh. Satari the Sky Witch has arrived. Ooh, like Satari is here. And I'm like, yes, she is, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Chris Luna from Bellflower asks, the guest performers were all amazing. My question is for all three of you. Throughout the tour, which guest performers were you most impressed with? I would never pit my competitors against one another or say this one was better than that one. But I will say there was a moment that touched me like no other moment. And it was the first moment. It was majesty because they had Mm. taken a hiatus from performing for two years since their season and came back and literally peeled their old skin off to reveal new skin and then just jumped in the crowd. I mean, it was the first guest we had and it was just such a powerful, awesome moment. I felt so electric just watching that. 
it was just so special and just something you could never get that back. And if you weren't there, you'll never know what it felt like. And that's it for me. I think I'd have to agree a little bit because Majesty was the first guest performer. It was really special because I think, at least for me, I didn't know how the guest performers were going to be received. We'd had the tour, the shows, and it was kind of preset. And it was like, oh, we already know how this is going to go. But then Majesty hit the stage and it was just electric. They were all amazing. I will say... I loved having formaldehyde on for Creatures of the Night. I thought that was really fun. Now, the same night when Coco was shaking them titties, the crowd went crazy, <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, it was good seeing everyone. I don't know. I mean, I, I have distinct memories of seeing Priscilla when we were in Nashville and Violencia in Boston. I mean, everyone was great. Yeah. I appreciated everyone's performances, and I was happy that they got to be there. But I guess the ones that stuck out to me would be Majesty, Zavaletta. And then just for the fun of it, for the podcast, having Formelda come on stage was so fun. <laughs> it was. Yeah. A devoted worshiper of Slanesh, Jacob from Utah, writes, You ghouls have mentioned several times that you are fans of tabletop role-playing games such as Warhammer and Dungeons and & Dragons. Do you ghouls have a favorite moment or character that you play that has stuck with you? Also, do you think the world of tabletop games has affected your drag in any way? I would say it has affected our drag, certainly. I mean, fantasy is a place that we draw inspiration from in a lot of our A looks. huge way. You could see some of the things we wear. You could see us. In, I mean, even the show that we're touring with, both of those looks could be characters in a game. Oh, Kind of Frankenwolf sure. or Ornaments of Gold show you could see in like World of Warcraft or something. Yeah, it's like tier armor, what yeah. we wear. I mean, I oftentimes. guess it's not a tabletop, it's the same kind of... Yeah, it's like, you know, fantasy games and tabletop games... I would say the grandeur and the magic, like the fantasy well is just as deep as like the horror well, particularly for me. So mm -hmm. I think we bring that to our looks. We bring that to the costuming and just the sensibility. Bitch, when we walk on the stage, it's like the divine have arrived or like these necromancers from the underworld. I mean, these are little things that are going through my mind when people look at us or they literally quake in the meet and greet. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe no one clocked the little sisters of battle Bob that we have going on recently. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> as far as particular characters, I was often the dungeon master. So even in years of playing when I was younger, I don't have too many characters that I'm like, that was me. It's most often creating the worlds and then putting my friends through it. Same with me. <laughs> I did the same thing. I was always the person that ran the games, never the player. So, yeah. But the, it's kind of fun because you get to act out all those different characters, which is fun. And so many devoted worshippers of Slanesh. I mean, why I have we unleashed? Oh, my God. Slanesh sissy spacecraft. So happy. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night. We will be returning to Los Angeles and our regular format from this point forward. So thank you for listening in and joining us on our journey across the country for the Belay Brothers Dragula Season 4 World Tour. As always, if you have questions or comments, please write to us at creatures at belaybrothersdragula.com. We'd love to hear from you. Goodbye for now, uglies. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre.